Hello and welcome to episode 64 of Give Yourself Some Leeway with me, your host, Eugene Lee. Following on from the recent TikTok trend on ADHD, I want to help you develop a more balanced view of what it's like to live with ADHD and how it can affect you, the advantages and disadvantages of ADHD in the workplace. Today I am joined by Diane Wingert, former psychotherapist, now business strategist and female entrepreneurship coach. And among many other things, Diane and I discuss how she went from being a psychotherapist into entrepreneurship coaching, how living with ADHD, there are pros and cons to living with ADHD, and how we can help to break the stigma around mental health in the workplace. As always, you can join the conversation over at giveyourselfsomeleeway.com. You can DM me on Instagram at eugene.leeway, or you can shoot me an email, eugene at leeway.ie. Thank you, and I really hope that you enjoy today's episode with Diane Wingert. Diane, welcome to Give Yourself Some Leeway, and thank you for joining the show. I've been looking forward to this, Eugene. Awesome. One thing that I always love starting with, especially with coaches, is that they tend to fall into, let's say, a similar pattern when it comes to coaching, um, be it that there is this moment of realization or a turning point in their lives that they want to maybe uh, follow a journey of self-improvement or rediscovery. And then there's a spark or this reason that gets like a vision that gets them back into serving others or helping others. So what was that like for you? Well, my story is a little bit different than many coaches because I had a former career as a licensed psychotherapist and I did that for many, many years. And yet I realized that I had come to a point where working with my own therapist was starting to feel a little monotonous. And we really weren't talking about the things that I was interested in talking about. So that was sort of the beginning of both the turning point and the pivot. The way I describe it now, Eugene, is that I realized both in my own life and in working with clients that I had reached a point where I was much more interested in talking about possibility and potential than in talking about problems. And while I have a lot of respect for the therapy profession, and I think Therapy is absolutely the right modality for abuse, trauma, addiction, and loss. I don't think it needs to go on for years and years. And I think once you are basically healed, then coaching is actually a much better approach if what you want is growth and movement towards your goals. So it was both personal and professional. And then I stopped working with a therapist, started working with a coach, and then realized this is what I want to do now. So I went through the training and haven't looked back. Brilliant. That's actually a great approach that you're no longer focusing on the problems, but looking towards the future. What is a person's potential? Mm-hmm. So uh, you said there you went from, let's say, working in therapy to now you're you niche with working with female solopreneurs. Mm -hmm. Uh, So what inspired you to focus specifically on female solopreneurs? Well, my career as a psychotherapist involves working in a lot of different environments, hospitals, community mental health agencies, group homes. I was a professor of social work. So I did a lot of different things over time. But the last few years, 
I was in private practice and it was initially a, a general practice, but I started niching down. And by the time I had been doing it several years, I realized I was really interested in working with adult women around midlife. Midlife for women and to some degree for men is a really spicy time. And a lot of people really want to rethink their career path, their relationships, their lifestyle, all kinds of things. So there's a lot of change going on. And what I started noticing is that a lot of the women that I was working with were really interested in a career change. And many of them wanted to start their own business. I just started seeing it come up again and again and again. So I thought, you know, I think for a lot of women, the typical path for straight women, in particular, you know, you get married, you finish your education, you get married, you have a family, and then the next 20 years of your life go by in the blink of an eye. Once the kids are starting to age out, that's when women tend to start focusing on themselves again and thinking, what do I want? Now that I'm at this stage of life, do I want to reinvent myself? Do I want to keep doing what I've been doing? So I started becoming fascinated with the fact that so many women seem to want to start their own business or simply pivot away from what they've been doing and be able to work in a more flexible way. And I had the same desire because renting an office, sitting on the couch across from the person meant I kind of needed to stay put. And I started feeling like I was ready to, I lived in LA all my life. I felt like I was ready to maybe move to another city or even move around and not have a specific home base. But as a therapist, I couldn't really do that. So it was sort of like a parallel process, I guess you could say, seeing in the lives of many of my uh, clients that they were wanting to start a business. They wanted something more flexible that was more adaptable to where they were at this stage of life. And I was wanting the same thing. So it, it kind of dovetailed really nicely. So it's kind of like uh, almost like scratching your own itch in a way kind of getting, getting into that style of coaching. Yep, absolutely. And you know, I didn't, I didn't really plan it that way, but I just, I, I'm a person who follows my curiosity and um, that tends to lead me to where I should be going. And are there any, let's say specific challenges that you feel are definitely more, let's say specific to female solopreneurs, let's say, as opposed to uh, other entrepreneurs, um, Yep. I work with people of all genders. That's a question that comes up a lot. You know, um, so, sometimes someone will reach out to me and say, uh, I, I love everything you say. And I think you're the person I want to work with, but I'm a man. Is that okay? <laughs> Which I always think, well, of course it's okay, but I market to women. And this is part of the answer to your question, Eugene. Uh, I think in general, and I'm going to make some broad statements. And of course there are always exceptions. And I don't like stereotypes any more than you do. But in general, uh, I think women are culturally conditioned from an early age to not make mistakes. We want to do things right. We want to do them the right way. The whole good girl syndrome. A lot of women, therefore, especially very smart women, highly educated women, the kind of women I like to work with, they strive to be A students, they want all the extracurriculars and they work very, very hard to excel. And you would say maybe have a lot of perfectionistic traits. What I've realized over time is that when you're trying to be perfect, when you're trying to avoid making mistakes, what goes with that is a tendency to seek permission 
to proceed, a avoidance of risk, and attributing failure to oneself as a personal shortcoming. Men, on the other hand, tend to be, oh, boys will be boys, you know, and we we tend to, and I have both uh, sons and a daughter, and I even realize this to some degree in my own parenting, is that we we want girls to fit in, we want them to be liked, we want them to be long, we come down a little harder on girls that are bossy or aggressive or overly ambitious, but we like those things in boys. So fast forward, you've got an adult woman who's very capable, very competent, very experienced, but she's afraid to do something if it isn't going to work out. Well, that is going to crush your opportunity to be an entrepreneur of any kind, because you don't know what's going to work until you do it. And you have to be willing to take risks and to fail sometimes over and over and over until you get it right. Women really don't know how to do that. So, um, and there, of course, some men don't know how to do that either. And some women do, but in general, I've done extensive amount of research on why the most capable women sometimes have the least amount of confidence in themselves. And so it kind of became a personal mission for me that I wanted to help women. If, if there are women who want to start their own business and they know they're very experienced and capable, but they lack the confidence because they lack experience taking risks and betting on them. That's what I wanted. That's the problem I wanted to help solve. So that's what I've been doing for the last number of years. Yeah, that's a great vision to have as well. And a lot of those, let's say those issues, that conditioning, that it even it goes beyond entrepreneurship. You see that in the workplace a lot as well. And yes. in terms of promotion and growth in the workplace, um, that, that those limiting beliefs really hold people in certain positions, no matter how much they want to either move up or move out. Yes. And, you know, that that doesn't discount the additional reality of, you know, patriarchal systems and toxic work culture. All of that is in addition. But you a woman can't be promoted if she doesn't put her hat in the ring, if she doesn't speak up in meetings, if she isn't able to consider the possibility that her promoting her own interests might make her a threat. Most women are not prepared for that. So a lot of really capable women hold themselves back. You're absolutely right in the workforce and in entrepreneurship. The thing is, if you have a job, you have a career and you don't get promoted, you're just quietly underachieving because you don't know how to promote yourself. At least you have a job. But when you've gone out on your own and now you have to be the boss of yourself and you are responsible for generating your own income you're not going to make it. So I think it's more of a problem for the women who've decided to be self-employed. They have and, to promote themselves. Yeah. Yeah. And and do you find, let's say that's, that's a, a massive, of course, uh, that, that, that starting point. Do you find that a lot, there's a lot of, let's say, um, entrepreneurs, but they just don't know where to get started. And uh, I suppose is the, let's say this, the entry point, seem a lot higher, a lot harder for, for those people. I would absolutely agree. In fact, you're giving me the opportunity to comment on something in the um, marketing online industry that I think is very unfortunate is that 
you know, we've had quiet quitting, we've had the great resignation, we've got millions of people who are now deciding to start their own businesses because they they don't want to be employed by someone else or after going through the pandemic and the quarantine and all that, they realize I actually like working from home and my employer wants me to come back. So I'm going to do my own thing. There's a lot of coaching programs in particular on the internet that are giving the impression that starting your own business, particularly as a coach, is easy, fast, fun, guaranteed money, and almost passive. And I don't think any of that is true. It certainly has been my experience. And so a lot of people decide, I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to be a coach. I'm going to start a coaching business. And it's going to be easy, fast, and fun. And they spend a lot of money on programs that supposedly are going to show them how to do it. And all they end up with is debt and no clients. So I that's one of my peeves about our industry is that I don't think entrepreneurship is for everybody. I don't think coaching is for everybody. And if you think it's going to be easy, fast, and fun, and overnight riches, you are not going to be prepared for the actual work of being your own boss. So that's my little soapbox. Yeah, that's actually something that I've seen a lot. A lot of people crash and burn within yes. three months even. And they were like, oh, I thought I was going to be rich by the end of the summer. And I was like... Oh, like you didn't think long terms like, no, no, I needed money. I need it's like I need a lot of money by three months time. So I push, let's say they put 20 grand into something and they're like, but I need 80 grand by the end of summer. And it's like, mm, it doesn't work that way. That's gambling, my friend. Yes, it, it, it's, <laughs> that, it's that's very gambling. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, I think another thing that we, I did want to touch on was uh, you are definitely an advocate for talking about, about uh, neurodivergence and ADHD. Mm-hmm. And um, I had Peter Shankman on the podcast um, very, very recently, and he talks a lot about how he uses ADHD as a superpower. Uh, what would be your stand on that? Well, uh, having come from the background of being a licensed psychotherapist for many, many years, I certainly had ample opportunity to meet and work with many people with ADHD. In fact, it goes all the way back to the 90s when my oldest son was diagnosed, and I actually did my master's thesis at UCLA on whether ADHD persists into adulthood, because at that time, only boys were being diagnosed and they believed that they outgrew it by the time they were teenagers. So I started beating the parents of these kids. And I'm like, excuse me, I know I'm just a lowly graduate student, but it seems to me that they don't outgrow it because I got a bunch of dads out there that are bouncing off the wall. So what I realized over time is that um, ADHD is actually more common than a lot of people think. I think that something like four point something percent of adults have been identified with ADHD, but I believe it's over 10%. And the difference is that, uh, and this is something I get asked a lot because I think there's so much confusion about ADHD. There's so many people talking about it right now, especially on TikTok, but that doesn't mean that they're spreading accurate information. ADHD can be a strength. I definitely would attribute many of my strengths to ADHD, but it is in the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders for a reason, because it is also responsible for my greatest struggles. So while I think it's very appealing 
to say ADHD is a superpower. And I know that's very popular, uh, you know, rhetoric. A lot of people are very attracted to that. I do think it denies the lived experience of many people who have legitimate, significant, long-term struggles with it. I think for me personally, um, I think ADHD is responsible for my fast brain, my quick ideas, my ability to recognize patterns very quickly, my creativity, uh, my high energy, my willingness to take risks, and many more things. It is also the source of my impulsivity, my hyperactivity, my tendency to interrupt people, my forgetfulness, the difficulty I have deciding on priorities, and the fact that I oftentimes start something with tremendous enthusiasm, which quickly fizzles. So every place I've ever lived has been littered with projects that I started that never got finished. And all these things are very common to people with ADHD. So I, I don't think it's one or the other, Eugene. I think it's both. And I think for me, where it starts and what I teach my clients is, we have to be curious enough about our traits to really get to know ourselves. So we can actually look at ourselves quite honestly and identify these are the strengths, these are the struggles, let me see how I can leverage those strengths, but I also need to manage the struggles because they're not going away. And if we don't manage them, they will affect the lives of the people around us. Just ask them. I think one analogy that comes to mind there, and uh, you can agree with or disagree with it, but it, what literally came to mind as you were describing your ADHD was that um, Uncle Ben quote from Spider-Man, with great power comes great responsibility. And yes, you have all the positives that ADHD brings you, the, the faster thinking faster, being creative and everything, but you also have to take into consideration there are downsides to having that superpower, that there, there are, the let's say you don't prioritize some things, you might forget other things, or your focus may not be on the right things at the right time. Yes. And that's why when people think, well, okay, I just got to get a diagnosis and I just got to get some medication and then I'm going to be cured. I'm going to be fixed and everything's going to be great. Listen, I'll be the first one to tell you, here's, here's the deal about medication, which by the way, I take. Um, ADHD medication does one job and it does it really well. It helps you persist longer on whatever it is you're paying attention to. So you're less distractible, but if you're not paying attention to the right thing for the right reason at the right time, it just means you're going to do more of that. So you still have to manage yourself. You still have, you know, I'm going to give you a perfect example of how uh, having ADHD affects the people around you. May I? Yeah, of course. Because I see patterns very quickly and I, my brain moves very quickly. There came a point where my own children didn't want to go to the movies with me because I, I love trying to figure out what's happening with the, the plot. And, you know, especially if it's a, it's a mystery or something like that. So I'm like watching and figuring things out. And then I would just blurt something out. Oh, I bet he's going to say this or, Oh, you know, it's going to happen next. Or if it's a comedy, I would get the joke faster. And other people were still trying to figure out what the joke was. And I'm laughing my head off really loud. 
And they're like, mom, you, you, you not only ruined it for us, look at everybody in the row looking at you. Like, and that's directly related to this fast moving brain and this pattern recognition, absolute ADHD traits. Now, if I wasn't willing to look at myself and develop that self-awareness and realized, oh yeah, like I, I need to be more aware of myself in certain public spaces because it's not fair to ruin the movie for other people just because I figured out the plot line faster. Make sense? Yeah, it does make sense. I think at the same time, you're kind of, let's say, weighing the pros and cons of does it take away from your enjoyment of it then as well? Like, yes, you do have to take consideration of others that they enjoy it as well. Um, but then it's, it feels like, do you enjoy going to the theater and going to see movies if you feel that uh, like that, that you're taking away the enjoyment from someone else or does that's it not such, affect you? That's such a good question. That's very astute. Um you know, depending on the kind of movie, there are times when I will go to a matinee alone because I'll know there won't be that very many people there and I'm going by myself. So I can blurt things out. I can laugh too loud. I can, it's not going to spoil anything for anybody. You know, um, there are times when I feel like being my full self is too much for some people. I even have a t-shirt that I like to wear that says, you may be too much for some people. They're not your people. But if you're too much for everybody, everywhere you go all the time, that's a you problem, not a then problem. So sometimes we do need to, I like to say, curb your enthusiasm, you know, because sometimes I can be just a little overly excitable and that can come across just too much for people. So, you know, I have curated my friend list over time. Because if I'm always too much for somebody, we're not going to have a good friendship. I actually love what you said there, especially about the movie theaters, because that's something I have definitely noticed, especially during my college years, is that uh, we go to a matinee show and there'd always be a few people who'd come in on their own and they'd sit in separate rows and they'd all be scattered across the front. And you'd be like, why are they all coming in on their own to come see a movie? And they'd be like, oh, I would not find a friend to come with. And I, like my friends used to always be like, oh, they must be so lonely that they come to the cinema on their own. But I was of the exact same mindset. If I had friends who didn't want to go see a movie and I really wanted to see the movie, I'd go on my own. It's the same yes. as watching Netflix at home on my own. I, of course, I just go see it on my own. Uh, but they just didn't have that understanding. And, mm. um, and I, I suppose then it's the same if you knew that you were going to have, let's say, a loud reaction or something that you didn't want, uh, let's say, your family members to be embarrassed by or something, then of course you go on your own. There's, there are mm -hmm. workarounds. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's just, it all comes to me down to self-awareness. And I think that's why I am in the middle way. I do not consider ADHD a superpower because that ignores the very real struggles of millions of people who have it, including my own struggles with it. But if you were to ask me, would I prefer not to have ADHD? I actually would prefer to have it, my ADHD, because I think it makes me fun, exciting, interesting, um, curious, creative. And I have some things that need to be managed or it's frustrating for me and the people around me. And I'm willing to manage those things.
that's that's a great way of putting putting it as well uh, I, I think there are lots lots of times where people are like oh you probably feel that let's say you you regret having this condition or you regret having this in your life but then at the end of the day i'm like no that's what made that's what makes me me mm-hmm. and uh at, at the end of the day um more often than not um I, I maybe i'm speaking from a place maybe i'm just grateful that i haven't had anything too debilitating in my life that i've uh, that i've always seen anything that i did have as you know what i'm actually grateful because i was always able to work around it and do something that suited me and uh, that i was able to let's say burden what other people would see as oh i could never live with that and i'd be like mm. no i was just able to work around with it and uh develop a lifestyle that made it suit me and suit me at the end of the day. And while you do not have a diagnosis of ADHD that I know of, I, I think that is ultimately the, the path to living well with ADHD, with autism, with dyslexia, with any kind of neurodivergence is figuring out what works for you and to the best of your ability, crafting and curating a lifestyle that works for you while managing the parts that are really challenging, whether that means hiring some kind of help, outsourcing, delegating, or having system. A lot of people like me say, I can't have any kind of routines. I can't have any kind of systems. I hate structure. I'm just a free spirit. I'm like, then you will probably never fulfill your true potential. Because I, I was that way for decades. I just scattered my creative energies in every different direction. If It wasn't until I was able to line things up with structure, with systems, with routines, that I was actually able to achieve my highest goals. Otherwise, I was just literally spraying it all over the place. Might have been a lot of fun to be around, but it wasn't doing anything for me. It's kind of like scattered light. And whether it be you're looking at it through a telescope or a microscope, you just have to find focus that lens or be it a camera. You just have to find focus that lens until everything kind of becomes a clearer picture. You have all this energy going in different directions. You just need to uh, do the fine focus until everything becomes a lot clearer. It's perfect. Yep, that's exactly right. It's like it's like a laser beam. A laser beam can kill. A laser beam can heal. It all depends on how you focus it. So. I, I prefer being more focused. And yes, I'm still plenty wild and silly and, you know, loud. And Well, this is all very enlightening when we're talking about our personal life and using, let's say, uh, using these as our superpowers and our, our responsibilities. But when it comes to the workplace, it can be a very difficult conversation to have, especially yes. when it comes to talking about mental health. This is something that... Um, I've come across a lot in the past where people aren't comfortable talking about your mental health. They're not comfortable with you talking about your mental health because it makes them feel uncomfortable. And they're like, oh, I'd rather not have that conversation. Whereas I feel that we really need to normalize these conversations in the workplace. I couldn't agree more. And I will tell you, Jean, I think a lot of people, um, even people that have come to me, wanting to work with me to develop their own business. And most of my clients are ADHD. Um, as I've had some clients that are also on the autism spectrum or ADHD and autistic. A lot of them are gifted, but most, most if not all of my clients are neurodivergent. And the majority of them wanted to start their own business because the workplace was too 
restrictive for them. It was too confining. Their job description, however high up the food chain they went, did not allow them to bring some of their best skills and traits to the workplace. And that's unfortunate because not every person is actually suited to working on their own. I think many people who are neurodivergent would prefer to be an employee and would actually be more successful as an employee, but they end up going out on their own, doing gigs, being freelancers, trying to cobble together some sort of a livelihood because they could not find a hospitable workplace that they could thrive in. That is unfortunate, unnecessary, and all the companies that are responsible for that are missing out. My experience with neurodivergent people is they are usually the ones who are going to bring the most innovative ideas to a company. And without them, companies are going to stagnate. That's yeah. my experience. Yeah, I think that there's a lot of, there's been a lot of change in, let's say, company culture and are definitely in, in the ways of work, especially in recent years. Yes. And there's a lot of, let's say, more established organizations, especially the big organizations that it's harder for them to change with the times. And they've like, I, let's say they've been doing business for the past 50, 60 maybe even longer years and maybe mm -hmm. they have worldwide branches and then you have let's say subcultures and microcultures in different branches of those companies around the world and next thing they find oh uh, we need to change with the times or we need to uh, change with new practices in different countries and they're resistant to that change because they're like well this worked with for us this far in in, in our careers uh, let's keep on pushing the needle as as far and as, as as long as possible until it all comes crashing down then let's reevaluate and it's it's about how how do you break that mindset or how do you try to kind of weave into that and be like how about we make small micro changes let's say little micro fractures in the system over time and somehow uh, kind of meld it in a different direction and make make it a bit more malleable I would agree with you 100%. And I think a lot of workplace cultures, just talking about the issue of, of mental health, mental disorders, mental conditions. I mean, ADHD is not a mental illness. It is a mental disorder, if you will. It's right there in the title. But I just think of it as a difference. And even if what is going on in the workplace worked in the past, it's probably not working as well as it used to because it's undeniable that our culture has changed quite dramatically in the last several decades and it's going to continue to change. So it's, it's like the, the book um, the about the growth mindset, Carol Dweck, you can resist, you can resent, you can deny but sooner or later, every industry is going to be disrupted and changed. It's just a matter of how long it takes and how much of a struggle it's going to be. Not all systems have to be disrupted, but many of them do. And I think pe more people my age need to partner with more people your age to see the value in that instead of being threatened by it. You know, what worked then worked, but why not have a conversation about what 
might work now and create experiments, test it out. Scientific way, right? Just, well, we don't know if this is going to work or not. Let's do a little experiment for six weeks. Who wants to get involved with this project? And then, and then we'll see. That way you don't have to defend your claim that we've always done it this way and this is how it has to say, like, what's the harm in an experiment? But not every, not every work culture is open to that. And unfortunately, some of them are going to have to be forced to be, which is unfortunate. Yeah, like I think there's, uh, it, it's trying to, that, let's say the, let's say the older generations who are, let's say that they, um, find one job uh, for and they stay in that job for 40 years and that's the way it is. I think that uh, definitely um, people my age uh, especially have that conversation a lot with their parents. And it, it's um, that uh, if they were to land a good job or did they, they go through school, they go through college and they finally land a, a big job, but they find, oh, this is draining, this is draining the life out of me. And mm -hmm. okay, maybe I trained to be a doctor, but by the time you uh, get out of um, med school or whatever, uh, you're like, oh, I just want to be a dog sitter. And that that's that's my true calling. And mm -hmm. they're like, oh, you can't, you've, you've got, gone through all this trouble, all these years of training, and now you've got the job. This is the job you're meant to be doing for the next 40 years so that you can buy a house and retire and then settle on your dog business. And it's like, why not do it now? And there's just that it's trying to break, have that mindset shift with that generation. Um, how do you it's like, how do you even have that conversation? And it's kind of like sometimes it feels like you're beating off a brick wall or bouncing a ball off a brick wall. Like it, none of it's going in, no matter how much you try. They're just um, so, let's say, um, uh, steadfast with their beliefs. And let's say we can be steadfast with our beliefs too, that yes, we are open to change. Um, and then they're like, oh, but this is what we've always known. Mm. You know what? I don't have that conversation with my kids because uh, even though I'm part of the older generation, technically, I have had four careers and I was successful in each of them. But as a person who's neurodivergent, I happen to be both gifted and ADHD, I will stay in something until I feel that I've mastered it to my satisfaction, not that there's nothing more to learn, but I've mastered it to my satisfaction and I feel complete with it. And now I'm curious about something else. Now, if I would have forced myself to stay in that path that I have now outgrown, I won't be happy. I might even get depressed. So I have realized for myself and for many other neurodivergent people, instead of what I call pick and stick, what, what you're expressing, you find your path, you pick it, and then you stick with it till death do you part. I believe that I am on the path of continuous personal evolution. It took me a while to realize that and to stop shaming myself and blaming myself for reinventing myself in several different careers because I didn't see anyone else my age doing that. I now have come to understand that is largely connected to being neurodivergent. Like, I don't think I can pick and stick. And if I had tried, I would have probably been miserable. I need to continue to evolve. Yes, it does mean there's the pain and the loss, the discomfort, the financial reverse of starting over. But for me, 
this is the better path because I have enough creativity and energy to start over again and again. I'm probably in my last career, but you never know. Yeah, I think definitely where you're coming from, where and definitely your kids are blessed to have someone like you that you're coming from, not that pick and stick mindset. You have that experience where you made those career changes. Whereas mm-hmm. I feel that, let's say, definitely my parents' generation, they got one job and they stuck with that job for 40 years. And they and they think that that's the most secure way mm-hmm. forward, that you're meant to stick with one job, never leave that job, never put your, yourself in a position where you put that job at risk by looking for another job somewhere else or, uh, God forbid, a career change. Um, it's uh, It's trying to help them to shift that mindset and be like you know what there's actually maybe there's more opportunity out there nowadays and maybe even for themselves that in your 40s and 50s 60s you could do a career change too absolutely aligned exactly yeah and i think a lot of people who end up you know they they've done the pick and stick they've stuck with something for 40 years now they finally get to the point where they get to retire and they don't know what to do with themselves because they never really planned for life beyond just getting to the finish line. That does not sound like a career to me, Eugene. That sounds like a life sentence. And I have zero interest in that. So I think, you know, what I wanted to come back to something we said a couple minutes ago. So I don't know if I fully responded to it. I do think it is scary for most people to acknowledge that they have a mental health condition of any kind, disorder, disease uh, in the workplace, because if you're dealing with a culture that just doesn't want to know, like, we just want you to come here and do your freaking work. We don't want to know about your personal life. We don't even want to think that you have one. You're here for a purpose. Just do that. And just keep the rest of that stuff to yourself. I don't think there are going to be very many millennials and certainly not generations younger than the millennials who are are going to stick around for that. They're they're going to find some other way to support themselves. Um, So I, I think it's just a matter of time. But there are laws in place. I'm not so sure in uh, in Ireland, but here in the States, I do believe we are going to see a lot more changes in the laws around protection for people who are different in any way. Because if you think about it, whether it's because you have a mental uh, condition or you're gay or you are a person of color or you have a physical disability, we don't like people that are different. It's very clear. So we make them uncomfortable. We make them feel unwelcome. We make them feel there's something wrong with them. They're not as good as people who are more mainstream. And I I do see evidence that that's changing. And I hope that it's going to be changing in my lifetime, but it certainly will change in yours because the percentage of people who have a mental health condition is really high. I mean, I happen to know because I work with a lot of women in their 40s and 50s something like 40 something percent of women over 40 are on antidepressants. Now, in order to get a prescription for an antidepressant here in the States, you have to be diagnosed with a mental disorder. So do we all have mental disorders? Maybe. And if that's the case, why do we still have stigma? You see, it it, it makes no sense. It's illogical. And to punish people for talking about that in the workplace, we're just going back to the 1950s. 
when half the housewives were addicted to Valium and day drinking, but nobody talked about it. It's not like we can go back to the good old days. The good old days weren't any gooder than the days we are in now. It's just that people weren't being honest. And I think it's healthy that we're pushing for honesty and for safe spaces for people to be exactly who they are, no more, no less. Yeah, it's, I think it's people, again, getting people to have the conversations. I think that's, that, that's where the biggest resistance is, is trying to have that conversation. And especially in the workplace, managers don't want to have those conversations with their, with their team because they feel like, oh, that's, that's another uh, job on the plate to, to address those issues. And, uh, and, and uh, again, that maybe that's a debate for another day or a discussion for another day. But again, it's trying to normalize having those conversations between teams and between team members as well. Because I, I remember when I first started speaking up about my mental health, I've mm-hmm. had people being like, some people were like, oh, we really respect that you are talking about your mental health. And it led to other conversations among colleagues, friends and family. Mm-hmm. And whereas then there were other people who were very resistant with being like, oh, I don't know if you can talk about that. It's like you're putting your career at risk if you ever talk about your mental health. Mm -hmm. What if your boss finds out that you Mm -hmm. actually have what if you what if you're stressed out at work? If they find out that you're stressed in your job, you're never going to get a promotion. And uh, that was, let's say, the the mentality around um, having a, a mental health condition, just like if you ever say that you're stressed at work then you're putting yourself in a very precarious position that you will never see growth or change in that, in that workplace. And that is the mindset that people have. So they don't have that conversation. So that's what kind of, I think people were trying to shut me up, but mm. it actually had a negative effect. It was throwing gas on the gas in the fire. I was like, mm. this got me fueled up. I was like, if you're that uncomfortable having that conversation, maybe I need to talk about it a bit more and normalize this conversation. Mm. You're like, Thanks for the, for the trigger to double tell. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know what, but I think it, it's, it's, uh, uh, maybe you are ADHD. It's, it's possible because one of the things I've noticed about people who have ADHD and, and many different types of neurodivergencies, we tend to be very activated by social justice issues. I don't know exactly why it probably has something to do with the fact that we know exactly how it feels to be misunderstood. We know exactly how it feels to have someone make assumptions about us based on our behavior and judge us accordingly without ever asking us, why do you do that? Or have you ever noticed that? And so I think this is a bigger issue and I'm, I know this is just a podcast interview today, but this is something I honestly think about a lot, Eugene. And if you want to get together a cross-cultural, cross-generational, cross-gender uh, campaign, crusade, manifesto to start changing workplace culture for the better for in the States, in Canada, in Europe... Like I am here for it. I would work for that for the rest of my life because it has to happen. It's just a matter of how long it's going to take and how painful it's going to be. It's got to happen. And you're part of the solution. Yeah, there, I think there's going to be a chain reaction 
definitely in the future. Maybe that can be my stretch goal for 2024. Once I collect these 100 stories in 2023, maybe that can, maybe I'll start a crusade in 2024. Hit me up when you do. <laughs> awesome. Diane, it was great having you here on Give Yourself Some Leeway. And I would love to have you back on the show again. Some other, it was, oh my God, this was such a high energy conversation. Thank you so much. It would much be my pleasure. You're welcome. <laughs>